Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our editor at large. I'm in New York, you're in Los Angeles, so that one side of the podcast hasn't really changed. But other than that, we are still living in this new world of everyone staying at home and businesses being closed. And I have to tell you, the thing that's been encouraging, Ann, is that we haven't just been having the same conversation every week because every week brings new updates as the industry and the community that we work with and, and, and work in and cover on a regular basis think through the challenges that they're facing. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating to think about is how much everyone is ready to get to the other side of this and also recognizing that we can't just rush into it. So unless you're in Georgia, which supposedly next week is going to open a bunch of businesses. We're still in this for the long haul. How are you holding up? I'm holding up okay. I'm, you know, it's like I have a good night's sleep and then I have a bad night's sleep. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, there's an earthquake. That was, that was a night where I, my sleep was, was interrupted. You know, just what we need right now. <laughs> are you but, seeing, uh, uh, are you seeing Brady Bunch style Zoom meetings when you close your eyes? Uh, you know, I'm getting really tired of Zoom meetings, and I've made a I've made a, a, a decision, which is that basically they're exhausting. <laughs> I think what happens is that we're reading social cues differently, and it's like we had our book group. Um, I mean, we're used to doing virtual meetings for our our staff meetings every week, and those go very smoothly because it really is about one person talking at a time, and and there's an agenda there, and 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 it feels really good to see all my my colleagues, you know, you know I, I feel very comforted by it, but true. other Zoom meetings are annoying. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, a lot of meetings are annoying in general too. And, and the problem with the technology that I've noticed if from a social standpoint is that when you have too many people in this context, you can't sidebar, you can't have that overlapping. That's, That's why the book experience. group was frustrating, yeah. really frustrating. I mean, you remember a little while ago when Facebook spent a billion dollars on Oculus? I keep thinking about how virtual reality really missed its moment to capitalize on how we could be socializing in a more immersive way right now. I mean, this, yeah, this, I this, agree. Like, it's, it really feels like there's just there's one step missing in all this. I mean, we're going to need to fast track holograms or something if we're going to be in the situation too much longer. And, uh, you I know, really we'll see enjoy how- the sort of relaxing, you know, Zoom hang where, or Facebook, really FaceTime hang is better where you where you it's just two people, you know, that, that can be really yeah. you go outside and hang out on the patio and have a glass of wine or something. But mostly I want to do phone meetings now. If I can do it on a phone, that's much better. Well, it's still better than texting. So there's some progress on that front for I think a lot of people that were were willing to uh, make the time to engage in a way that our culture had been sort of drifting away from in favor of immediacy. And uh, maybe that's a positive on some level. I'm curious to see how creative people are being inspired by all this. I saw that the guys from the office want to do some kind of show about this kind of working environment and you know the, that those unfriended horror movies were the first i think to do that kind of 
desktop documentary style storytelling device for a horror movie. But I'd love to see the other kinds of stories that you can tell with the way that people are communicating right now because of all the com- conflicts that you're touching on, the, the, the challenges and the awkwardness and the exhaustion that comes out of trying to communicate in a format that's not totally perfect for communication. And yet everyone's still trying to get work done. So, well, I, one of the things I was going to save this for later, but it it fits where we are right now. One of the things that I get a huge kick out of is the way that creative people use the time to create shorts and make little videos. And like someone like Lee Unkrich, who's one of the great Pixar directors has made a series of videos where he's fooling around with his hair, you know, and animators understand, you know, what's entertaining and how to make a face and how to make a, a graphic design, you know, with your hair, you know, and he, he just charms me. And, and there's someone like Ju- Ju- Jessica Chastain is making these delightful, witty shorts. Uh, she's been very productive. She's, she's been, uh, um, going on the AFI thing to introduce, uh, Moonstruck and she interviewed the filmmaker of Unorthodox on the Variety site. You know, she's been all over the place. She's one of those people who is not, uh, w- waiting around to, to, uh, she's making us entertained. Someone like Zoe Kazan is very entertaining on uh, on on Twitter. I appreciate the people who spread the love. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of people. I mean, this thing Guillermo del Toro did this past week where he was gathering filmmakers in, in like this epic Twitter thread to talk about what they were watching and stuff after making a deliberate decision in the first few weeks not to be a public figure during all this stuff, recognizing that actually the world, it's not self-serving to come out and make stuff because the world wanted stuff from you before. So that hasn't changed. And just because you can't do it in the same way doesn't mean that you can't still have something constructive to offer in the same space where you were appreciated before. Well, a lot of people, what they did on that, uh, I highly recommend reading that thread. It's just wonderful. Darren Aronofsky and and James Mangold and, and you know, Edgar the usual Wright. suspects are, are on there. Um, these are the people I follow uh, anyway with, with great pleasure. But um, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is you know, someone like Ryan Johnson, you know. Uh, but there are people who are comfortable, who are comfortable sharing their love of movies. And lots of people are sharing that. Uh, I enjoyed Manola Dargis's story in the New York Times about 30s movies. Um, you know, oh, yeah. so much good stuff. Criterion's numbers... I actually checked in with Criterion to see if there was any any uh, actual statistical uh, bump that they could share with me. And they said, we don't talk about our numbers. Of course not. But you know that, of course, that everybody's seeing bumps across the board. I mean, streaming is up 100% year over year for whatever that means. But Netflix thing added is- 16 million subscribers. It's insane. It's insane, but you, it does open up these interesting questions about whether or not it's an artificial bump. or It is probably this is, be- and they admit it. I mean, read Hastings admitted that. You have that. to look at it that you way. You have to prepare wonder, the people you know, for the fact that that kind of level won't continue. Yeah. Right. So, and, and where what, what and people it, will have less it. money later on, too. Right. And, and then you have streaming platforms that are actually launching in the middle of all this, like HBO Max. So, what will be the new normal? when we get to the other side of this and perhaps people aren't watching streaming. All right, so that, absolutely. That uh, opens up a segue to, to the next question. Um, John Stanky, who is the uh, head, uh, I, I almost want to say stinky because I, yeah, I keep reacting badly. <laughs> I keep, I keep having very negative uh, responses to, to him. Uh, for one thing, he um, is, is sort of tone deaf 
about the, he's the head of AT&T and the head of Warner, uh, Time Warner and, and Warner Media and everything. And, and he is, uh, Warner, Warner Brothers, everything, uh, Warner. And he is, um, really, uh, saying things that that he doesn't realize how they're going to to come across like in one memorable um meetings you know sort of a call with media mostly from wall street where he didn't realize that everybody else was paying attention to it as well he was saying things like well those dumb consumers i'm paraphrasing those dumb consumers will figure out how to how to get hbo and you know all the different offerings that um HBO Max is going to have, you know, he's, they're not going to make it easy for you. They're going to try to make it so that you spend more money and don't get everything you could get. And, and the other, the other thing he said this week was, was they're looking at replacing theatrical <laughs> releases. And this is when their own filmmaker, Christopher Nolan, is actually doubling down on Tenet coming out on July 17th in theaters. Yeah, so there's you're building towards this inevitable showdown between Nolan and the powers that be and just how much those powers are willing to satisfy his desire to be leading the charge of bringing theatrical back into business and, and saving the industry of Tenet, which is finished, is the first big movie that comes out into theaters this, whatever it is, July, then does that, you know become does that become sort of the the, the new paradigm does he reopen the floodgates on some level and then allow his movie to become you know the big movie of the year which you know maybe it could have been anyway it it isn't up to john stanky i mean at this point i mean eventually if he is looking at new models for how to release warner brothers movies that are you know doesn't that favors hbo max as opposed to um theaters, you know, I, I think all the studios are looking at it. Um, and the, and the big question is, is how do they make their money back on something really expensive? And, but the person who wants to go into theaters is Chris Nolan and he believes yeah, in and that he also, and he's he all the other moved, you know, into other places and they've well, but the thing is on this July date. But the thing with Nolan, that's always been interesting, or at least in the last few years has been, worth note you know singling out is that he has the luxury of saying i want to have my movies released in this kind of way and he he works on a certain scale and all that kind of stuff so it's like it's an interesting question of if tenant is like the the movie that comes out in theaters just to satisfy nolan it could end up being like the only movie to see in theaters for a while and that could actually work out pretty well without even you know, indicating anything about Warner Brothers model or anybody else's model. Well, what you're going to see at some, you know, I don't know how soon it's going to happen, but there's, there's already signs that certain theaters are shutting down and, and that, um, you know, something like AMC is, is, you know, there, I think in Florida, there's a suit against AMC because they haven't been paying their rent. Um, You know, there, there are real estate issues here uh, with a huge theater chain that is badly leveraged in, in terms of debt and they are going to probably have to go through chapter 11 at some point. And so you could have a winnowing out um, and, and a situation where there's fewer theaters, but you could also have fewer movies 
Um, and you could also have a lot of distancing, social distancing in the movie theaters so that it's going to be a different experience. Um, I, I keep, we keep asking, do, if we wear face masks to the theater, do we get to eat popcorn? <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody's going to get really rich inventing like a popcorn friendly face mask with like an attachable tube or I something like that. I think once like you that. get into your distanced seats, right? And you have your, and you're not moving around for two hours. Hopefully you can sit there and munch your popcorn. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to figure out the rules once we have the opportunity to figure them out. And there are different kinds of ways we can see the theaters reopening and, and sort of, you know, explore these options without just all of a sudden going back to where they were before. I mean, IFC said this past week, they're going to let their, their older films are available for, for theaters to book for free. That's so great. I mean, imagine, I mean, the, it could be a very interesting moment where it's like your local theater is showing Tenet and then like, you know, Boyhood. And, you know, it should be like a very eclectic, unusual time for movie going, but it'll allow people to sort of test the waters and see what's possible the as we gradually come back. Absolutely. The part that's really scary, I think, um, with the theaters, though, um, uh, for example, um, Toronto made a, the, the film festival made a statement, uh, yesterday that they were going to stick to their date and not change their date because there was a chance of a second wave that wouldn't be in October, but would be in November and December. And this, this sort of strikes fear <laughs> because if the theaters do open, right. And they put, bring all their employees back to work and they, you know, it takes money. It takes, it's expensive to put a business back up on its feet. And then they have to close down again with the second wave. That is a really scary thing. It is. And I think that what what's happening is that you're seeing on the way that this country is designed, it's very hard to have any kind of mobilized response because states can do whatever the hell they want, which is why we have this absurd situation with Georgia trying to open. Even but though what's most really happening there, Eric, is that they said that movie theaters could open, but they're not going to. They're not going to because and it's the NATO, NATO, the Organization of Theater Owners, National Organization, they have stated that they think that theaters should open unified nationally all at the same time. They're chains. The big chains have theaters. Some of them are regional, obviously, but mo the big ones are all over the country. And, and you don't want to open one part of the country and not the other. I think it's also a question of what a second wave looks like. And, and if we can define the terms enough in the future so that it, we can give people assurance that when things are opening, whether it's a movie theater or any other kind of business, that there is sort of an awareness in place of, of what would happen to cause another closure to happen. So we're not blindsided if there is a second wave and being able to assure people of that, I think would help provide some vote of confidence that when a theater is opening, it knows that this is a safe time to be opening. And it also raises another question, which I think we should talk about, which is the ongoing open uh, uh, question facing film festivals. Right. And we talked about it a bit last week, but if you have one sick person at an, at an environment where people are running around going from one screen to another, one venue to a next, and then to a party or whatever, one sick person in that thing just can't happen. And so the idea of holding these festivals, in some ways, it's it's a microcosm of the issue facing theaters because it's it's so 
it's such a high risk kind of a thing and we and it's impossible to predict what the environment's going to be like in advance so their organizational challenges right now are kind of fascinating in a way so we're assuming that can isn't happening and if it does happen it's going to be uh local it's going to be a french film festival it's going to be about supporting the french film industry and i could imagine them even moving it to paris or something sure. to be able to get the filmmakers and to prevent people from having to travel because travel is a is a negative and i think venice is going to be an italian film festival yeah i mean and it'll be very european in, in flavor if you think about it culturally it could be kind of uh, helpful in a way to to see a year in which individual national cinemas get a boost in their own economies, and then we come back in a year or whatever, and those national cinemas are robust or, or stronger. And then it will be a real question of who else needs some some assistance. I mean, it's right. unfortunate if you don't have that resource built in. I mean, yes. we don't here in the U.S. So. Exactly. So we're looking at a situation where the strong survive and the biggest festivals may be able to continue to get. So part of the problem for the festivals is sponsorships. So you, it, we're in an, in, an, in an environment now, a business environment, where all the corporations are hurting and they aren't necessarily in the mood for marketing, for advertising is way, way down. That's why newspapers are hurting is because their their traffic may be up, but they're not getting ads. And and I find this very painful locally here for the for the LA Times, uh, very bad. And so and so they're having layoffs and furloughs and all that stuff. And then you have um, sponsors that support these film festivals may not want to anymore. And that's that could hurt something like Toronto, which is this huge, sprawling, long film festival that is very reliant on these big sponsors. And um, I think you're going to see smaller local festivals because they, ca- they can't afford and, and people aren't going to travel. And well, yeah, talent Toronto, isn't going to travel. Well, that's there, there's a couple of things that you're, you're hitting on here. One with Toronto, you have a unique identity relative to the other big fall festivals in that it is very much a, a local festival in tandem with being a major industry festival. And, and a so market. It is in a market that the crowds are so uh, diverse in terms of what the environment is like. And so scaling back on that means basically creating a new festival altogether that's not a recognizable tiff from previous editions. And the other festivals aren't necessarily facing that challenge. I mean, maybe Venice being more nationally oriented, it's not quite the same sort of thing. I think New York Film Festival should be interesting, but it's, you know, a lot of the talent, as you say, that's an issue and talent, a lot of it lives in New York. So maybe so New York Film Festival gonna will be- not be it. So what's yeah. going to happen is that is that you, first, and we're leaving out uh, Telluride, right? So yeah. Telluride is the one that comes right after or concurrent with with Venice over Labor Day weekend, and they have this weird thing going on where um, they've actually tested. There's like eight thousand residents in the big bigger Telluride area. There's a you know they they have lots lots of billionaires up there, and one guy you know put up the funding so that they could do a, a full test of throughout and uh, the, the area. So they're there. I'm fascinated. They've given the permit to, to have the festival. They've given them permission to have an extra day so that they can have more spacing. And there's some discussion of there being, you know, virtual talent um, and, uh, and everything. But I keep wondering who's going to go there. I mean, it's, a, it's an if a tree falls question, though, on some level, because if the what we what we the handful of media talk about when we go to Telluride to, to a large degree does have to do with that talent of many different levels 
being on the ground, interacting with them in that environment, you know, in a sort of a casual down to earth vibe that allows them to and seeing their how the movies campaign. play with yeah, audiences. Yeah, exactly. That's the most and, important thing. And if you can't have the talent, do you still show your movie at, at a festival like this? I mean, who's going to be on the ground where it would really matter? So one of the people I interviewed for this story that went up yesterday, uh, one of the Oscar strategists who, who I respect, uh, suggested that what you do is you let Telluride play the curatorial role that it always has. It's the best curated festival, you know, ever. And they, um, would still do whatever skeleton version of it they're doing locally for the local people, but they, they would also have screenings in New York and LA and maybe put in guild members and put in other people so that there's someone in there. And, and you would know that it was scheduled to, that it was playing in Telluride. You just, the media wouldn't be there, but they would get to see it at the same time and write about it. And we've done that before, Eric, this you've gotten true. screenings of something early and, and, I mean, before. It, I mean, I, I think without them, my life would be even more hectic than it already is. But one of the reasons why I really benefit from those early screenings is so that it opens up the schedule to experience the vibe on the ground, to talk to industry people in between things and all that kind of thing. And the, the virtual environment so far has not been able to replicate the kind of organic nature of being on the festival ground and hearing the, the kind of conversation evolve from a journalistic standpoint. It's just, it, you cannot get that experience. So I'll be curious to see, I mean, maybe there is a way for us to replicate that. Maybe that's what needs to happen is that festivals need to somehow create, you know, I hate to bring up the Z word again, but could we have some, uh, some zoom parties to, to replace, uh, to replace what they do at the saloon every night or yeah, let's have a premiere know. let's have a, a <laughs> yes. sheridan a sheridan, the sheridan uh, yeah. hang uh, a, a with, with tom sheridan bernard thing. and his tequila shots yes they'll have to mail them to all of us but hey that's no, an interesting I mean, question you and i are talking about mourning uh you know you and i we live <laughs> for these festivals we love them yeah, not only to see the movies but to talk to our our colleagues yeah. and to talk of filmmakers. I mean, it's something that we absolutely live for. I'm mourning can I'm mourning well, to tell you right already. What I, what I always say is that it's like being on the front lines of film culture and not just because of the award side of it. I mean, a lot of time, times, you know, people that you and I know who are cinephiles kind of, and, and would prefer to poo poo Oscar season, you know, they think that that's, we spend too much time talking about this stuff. To me, it's like the Trojan horse for talking about movies to the wider culture in general, which is why I love the fall festival circuit, because there's usually something else, you know, the act of killing or something like that, that will appear at a Telluride or wherever that you can then drag into the rest of the conversation and, and sort of champion alongside stuff that has bigger stars or more marketing dollars behind it or whatever it is. And this I is don't the know. most important thing because the yes. smaller films, right? I mean, let's let's just you know something like David Fincher's Mank, which is coming up from you know, Gary Oldman, coming up from Netflix. We're not worried about that. We're we're not worried about Dune. We're not worried about Tenet or or you know these movies are going to get attention and people are going to watch. Looking it. forward to them. I yeah, mean, they of might course, be <laughs> but but they're going to be taken care of. We're worried about all those discovery films and the films that need to emerge and be written and read. But but as we talk, Eric, I'm really thinking about it we can we can do our version 
of discovering these movies, knowing that they're booked, knowing that they have a date that they're going to play, knowing that there's a review, you know, time for them to run. You will, we can, we can make it happen and give them attention and, 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 and make it clear what our reaction is and distributors can pay attention to that. And, and it's just going to be different in, this year. And there can be, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, th- these festivals are all about as well vetting uh, p- potential Oscar contenders. That too will, will happen. And New York will be key because it's later because there's so much talent there. And then later on in, a, in LA, it'll be AFI so that it's going to stay local and all these films will get attention and get get support from their local uh, talent there. Yeah, well, I mean, it, we could do an audit at some point and figure out exactly where the local talent is. I mean, who's in New York versus who's in L.A. in the movies that are looking to get positioned. And who's in Toronto. That, and who's, yeah. 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 And then the other question, obviously, we're a few days out now from the Academy trying to sort through its next phase. April 28th. Last, and we, we spoke... Um, last week quite extensively and and I think got some really interesting feedback from people about the idea of could the Oscars become, you know, more of a charitable cause or or whatever. Something has got to give there in terms of clarifying the mission of the organization. But what's also fascinating to see is the distributors, I think on some level, are waiting to find out what the Academy does so that that will inform their own strategies. So at least one distributor we know has not waited and that's neon doing a virtual cinema kind of release with this documentary spaceship earth and ceo tom quinn saying they absolutely want this movie to qualify for the oscars well by uh today's rules of that the academy would set forth it would not because they're doing a virtual cinema release with some drive-in type stuff um they're doing something very innovative i think in that it's not only theaters that can release the film through transactional VOD, but any small business, restaurants, bookstores, or whatever. But the rules will need to change for a documentary like this one. The premiere at Sundance, pretty good. It's about Biosphere. Good filmmaker, Matt Wolf. This is a film that, that they do want to be an awards contender. So well, they will need the, the, Academy. Uh, the Academy will, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and from what I've heard, this is not something to worry about. Lean into, you know, making sure that the rules are, are uh, a little more flexible for this, for this year. We don't know whether they're pushing the date back. We don't know if they're even going to happen, but um, I'm pretty sure they, they will. And, and the reporting I did <laughs> again this week, um, shows uh, and, and a very uh, revealing uh, story a deadline that Michael Sipley did uh, shows that the finances are just gruesome, partly because of, of the very much because of the Academy Museum. I mean, imagine that this thing <laughs> that costs like $428 million and isn't finished and still and still isn't going to open until December if, if they make the date. Um who's going to be a tourist coming to see a a, 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 a movie, a a museum dedicated to movies, um, (laughs) which at this point are are really looking rather fragile and, and old school indeed. I guess the thing in in the relative to going to a movie theater, uh, a museum could be designed around social distancing measures. It's pretty big. We've been there. You can, you could manage a, a smaller, crowd turnout at first but it would have to be done in, in piecemeal fashion that thing certainly is quite the money pit though and it's clear that they can't just not have the oscars they need the money from abc they need those money yeah and, and i think Even honestly, if the money is going to be less because the advertisers are not going to step up at the same level 
I think the Oscars will benefit from if we're still in feeling the reverberations of this situation by the time they would be coming on, which seems likely in some fashion that they will have had a year to see different kinds of events take place through, you know, virtual options and social distancing and stuff. So it's like, well, okay, maybe, maybe they don't have to do it on zoom. Maybe you can, you know, drive a, a, a crane with a camera on it outside Hugh Jackman's apartment or whatever, and have him like dance on the roof. And, you know, you could do things production value wise. It could be kind of interesting and weighed it out and see how different people experiment and what works and what doesn't work. And the Oscars could still be good TV. So I think it's, I think it's salvageable in that respect. It's just a question of how they work together to make that happen. So it's a, it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of not just this meeting, but how the Academy continues to talk things through. Uh, But we'll, we'll see. And and next time we record, I'm sure we'll have an interesting update to, to, to dig through. Well, absolutely. Well, one of the things that um, uh, I was delighted by this, this, this last week was the, this concert called one world together at home. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was really well done and uh, a fascinating way of pulling talent from all over the world into a really well, well uh, executed uh, uh, thing. And and I I think that if, if, as as, as you say, they're only going to be more adept and more clever when we get to uh, February or or March. The production values keep getting better. And it's like, you have to see, okay, what doesn't work? Well, if somebody has a bad connection, how can you work around that and those sort of things? So it's, um, it'll be fascinating to see what happens when we get to that point. So speaking but, but of, it, but the opportunity to really rally behind cinema around the world is just one they cannot pass up. They, they gotta, know. they gotta do it. I mean, they, that's they've got to step up for, the right way. Film festivals got to step up to the extent that they can, but film festivals don't have the platform that the Oscars does. And, so they, and, really and the people gotta, who are worried that they're not enough movies, they can, they can, they only need ten. <laughs> they only need about ten movies. They can there do are it. always good. I always say at the end of the year, anyone who thinks it was a bad year for movies hasn't seen enough of them. We'll have plenty of movies to dig through. And speaking of which, what have you been watching lately? Well, I I, I have to say that that the um, the whole question of 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 of, of Twitter, uh, as I said, you know, I really enjoy uh, looking at Brian Koppelman's, you know, Coffee Royale every morning, or or uh, it's almost like a ritual now. Or Albert Brooks, who's just so brilliant uh, every every day, uh, usually on on politics. Um, or Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, giving us little vignettes with his children at home. Uh, or or Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae uh, promoting the Lovebirds on Netflix with this hilarious exchange uh between them that was simultaneously you know like like in on the con and and uh you know authentic at the same time you know that they were promoting something in in an amusing self-aware kind of of way uh but as far as uh other stuff i'm i'm watching uh the 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 deuce the deuce is my i'm catching up on 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 my own stuff no, no, no. I'm on the, the, the most Your recent. I'm, I'm almost finished with it. Um, and Maggie Gyllenhaal is just amazing in this thing. Uh, maybe it's because I grew up in, in that. I mean, I was in New York in the, in the period, uh, and I recognize it. There's something terribly familiar about the this. The kind of grimy porn scene. The, 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 I used to work at, at United Artists at, 
uh, on 49th Street and 7th Avenue. Oh, and, uh, you know, I, I, there were there was a porn theater across the street. You know, I'm sure I, you I, never I, went in. No. <laughs> Even though taxi driver sort of romanticized it around that exactly. time too. So. Um, How about well, you? That's, that's interesting. I, I've been watching all kinds of stuff. I just started watching Zero 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 uh, on Amazon Prime, which is an amazing show. Such a great ensemble cast. I'm super excited to uh, make my way through that season. I've been watching Devs, which is terrific. Alex Garland, total auteur that's now. That's you. Really, really cool. Uh, on the movies front, I continue to make my way through a really fun uh, classic Hollywood syllabus. I'm sort of almost wrapping that one up, and then I'll probably need another kind of class to plug into. But just last night, I watched Manhunt, which I'd never seen before, the Fritz Lang film, which is amazing. Have you seen that one with Walter Pigeon and Joan Bennett? No. It's so, it's so great. It was one of the last big Hollywood movies about the war before Pearl Harbor. And it's like Walter Pigeon is this guy. He's like this British guy who, who puts in the first scene, he tracks down Hitler and puts him in the sight lines of his gun and doesn't pull the trigger because he's a, he's a hunter and he just likes the hunt. But then the Nazis catch him and they, they sort of, they want him to, 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 state that he was actually trying to kill Hitler and he refuses. And the whole thing evolves into this fascinating kind of metaphor for the U.S. and its sort of reticence to to go beyond being neutral during World War II, which is such a time capsule. But it's amazing, too, because Fritz Lang obviously, you know, fled Germany a decade earlier. So it's just an amazing film from a director who obviously I, I admire quite a bit. Uh, and I was completely unaware of this work. So it's neat to to make these kinds of discoveries. You know, it's like it's not like this film was ignored when it came out. But over time, you know, history changes things and we canonize some films more than others. So that process of discovery has been a lot of fun for me. So I enjoyed watching uh, you uh, write about television also, Eric. Uh, yeah. There's know, a lot I, of either the, the TV team is overwhelmed. And so the film team has, has stepped in to help out. Well, I think we're all one team at the end of the day. And, and these things are, are, they speak the same language, even if we process them differently. I mean, I've been writing about TV on and off for, you know, upwards of a dec- decade now, since we first started covering the medium and didn't have, you know, a complete staff. And I don't envy anyone who has to dig through how much TV there is in any one given moment, especially relative to the number of movies there are out there. But it's nice to be in a situation where we're just kind of talking about moving images as a whole because, you know, the medium is constantly evolving. So we need to be open to these things anyway. So I suppose that is the proverbial silver lining in this situation. But what would you recommend um, that we see? So, I mean, like I said, 000, I just started on. I think it's great in devs. Um, there's a, if you're, if you're up for something really wild and innovative, uh, I would check out this new animated series on Netflix called Midnight Gospel, which is co-created by Pendleton Ward, who some people know I'm a big fan of Adventure Time. It's his new show. Uh, but he takes audio from a podcast from this comedian named Duncan Trussell, and he turns it into a science fiction story. But the, the podcast is interviews with people mostly about issues like meditation and mind-body wellness. So it's these very deep philosophical conversations, but they're animated as if you're watching this really kind of like psychedelic uh, space 
opera of sorts. And it's it's really, I mean, it's a, it's trippy, but it's also really profound. And if you open yourself up to it, I think you'll get something kind of cool out of it. So Eric gets I don't know spiritual. if it's quite This is a first. This is a first hey, on the show. <laughs> I, I'll say spirituality and religion are two very different things, but perhaps that's a conversation for another time. Right, Next Eric. week, I guess we'll have um, some Oscar updates to dig into when this meeting finally happens. And who knows what else? We live in strange times, but take care of yourself, Anna. I hope you get some outdoor time over the weekend. You too, Eric. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.